0: Welcome to Nothing Personal with David Sampson. I am David Sampson. I'm really happy you join me for this episode number 1 on October 14th, 2019. You're going to have an opportunity here with me every single day to get insight into all the trending sports stories. If it's going on and you have an opinion about it, I'm going to explain whether your opinion's right, whether it's wrong, whether it's based on truth, facts or fiction. I want to give you a seat at the table and start decoding all of the crazy stories that happen, everything. And it starts with, of course, it starts with the Yankees, the American League Championship Series. Did everyone stay up for that game last night? Because I know I did. And I understood one thing. James Paxton, two takeaways from that game. Don't believe Aaron Boone. James Paxton was tipping his pitches. I learned long ago that when you see an offensive team like the Astros, when they're communicating to each other out in the open, not back in the clubhouse, not in the video room, but when they're getting real time information to their teammates, that is always about tipping pitches or stealing signs. So the bench players for your team have two jobs. One, they've got to keep morale up for the starters but two, their job is to try to steal the signs from the third-base coach or from the manager. Managers always go like this. For those of you listening, you know what I'm doing. I'm touching my nose, my chin, trying to figure out what the manager is saying about throws over to first base or hit and runs or anything like that. So James Paxton definitely tipping pitches. So what does Aaron Boone do? He's got to go to his bullpen early. The problem with going to your bullpen early in a seven-game series is is you are counting on five or six pitchers every single day to perform well. And Adovino just didn't do it. He laid that in there for the game-tying home run. And then, of course, Correa hits the extra inning home run. Uh, remember the last shortstop to an extra inning home run, everybody? 2003, Alex Gonzalez hit that in game four. That was what helped propel the Marlins to that World Series victory. That was supposed to be Roger Clemens' last game. I remember that I gave him this, uh, this huge standing ovation. Everybody was crying because this was Roger Clemens' last game ever. Little did we know that he would have quite a much longer career. He'd unretire and even win a Cy Young award or two. So this ALCS to me is a very interesting series. We always thought it would go seven. It was a must win for the Astros. Verlander on the hill goes six and two thirds, where Paxton goes two and a third. That difference is what you're going to see throughout this series. So with Severino going in game three, it becomes an obviously an important game, but he's going against Cole. So if you're the Astros, you're not worried at all. Winning that game was critical, having Correa walk it off. But even if the Astros go down two-o and you've got Garrett Cole going for game three, you've got a level of confidence that's just different. Whereas the Yankees are just piecing things together, it seems. Stanton's injured. He missed the game because of his quad. I've seen Stanton's quads. They're large. They're being worked on. People line up to work on Stanton's quads and not just the trainers. I know you know what I mean. So from Stanton's standpoint, he's got to get himself healthy because they need him. They can't count on Cameron Mabin to be an offensive force. He is simply a defensive replacement. That's the best that Cameron Mabin can ever be. But tonight we get uh, the, na- the National League Championship Series. This is a series that we predicted to go long here on CBS Sports HQ. And if you're watching this series, did you think maybe the Cards would have no hits from Annabelle Sanchez and Max Scherzer over two games that the only player with an RBI in the series is a guy named Jose Martinez, who's not even in the starting lineup the first two games. Uh, spoiler alert, he's in the starting lineup game three. Mike Schilt had the, the manager for the Cardinals had to do something, have to mix it up. I don't necessarily agree with whole scale lineup changes, but by removing Matt Carpenter, from the game, you get to move Edmund to third, and then you get to put Martinez in the outfield. And Martinez has been their only bat. But let's face it, there's no chance at all that the St. Louis Cardinals can win this series if Ozuna and Goldschmidt don't start hitting. And the front office meets with Schilt before this game. They're doing the lineup, and they're saying to themselves exactly what I'm telling you, which is hey, tip your cap. If we can't hit off Strasbourg, and if Flaherty, our ace, cannot get it done tonight, we're going to lose the series. And that's how it goes. You can't expect a better pitching game than what Wainwright gave you in game two. They need the same from Flaherty. He's got to go deep in the game. If you're the Nats, you know winning tonight is like going to the World Series because who comes back from 3-0? Oh yeah. Um, Just the Red Sox. One time, 2004. And I don't think the Cardinals are the 2004 Red Sox. So this is like a game seven. So what you should look for is Shilton the Cardinals to manage this game as though it's a game seven? You remember what happened their last elimination game against the Braves, they scored ten in the first. If you get a line that gives you an over-under of runs scored in the first of four, take the under, but I still think you're going to see early scoring by the Cardinals because their approach is going to be different. As far as the Nats approach, They may be tight knowing that for them, winning this gets them to the World Series. It's been an unbelievable playoff run so far. Both championship series are incredibly exciting, and what I love the most is that we have a chance to have two seven-game series and even a World Series of seven games, because let's face it, who doesn't want a seven-game series? So we're watching all of those things take place in MLB, and it's also a football Sunday yesterday, and I don't know about you, but... When I am on a Sunday and I've got MLB, which I love, I also have NFL where every week is a critical week. You know the math. Every football game is 10 games of baseball because there's 16, only 16 regular season games. And there's always going to be so many stories and so many fun games to watch. But of course, I'm in Miami, so I had no choice but to watch the Redskins-Dolphins game. I was trying to imagine what else I would have preferred to watch other than the tank for Bowl. Was it exciting enough in week six to think about what could be coming down the pike for these two teams if they get the number one pick? Was it intriguing enough to watch an entire game, wondering how it would end, thinking could it actually end in a tie? And it was 0-0 after the first quarter. And I actually thought to myself, if I'm the front office of the Dolphins or the Redskins, even though it's Bill Callahan's first game as the coach, I don't want to win this game. There's no moral victory by going 1-15 versus 0-16 or 2-14. and So Josh Rosen's in the game. Bill Callahan has his first game as coach of the Redskins. And the first quarter between the two of them, I'm almost positive that my high school team would have had more yards from scrimmage than what these two teams had. And it's not as though the Steel Curtain was on defense or even the Patriots of this year. These teams are both bad. So the first quarter happens, then the game progresses and it looks like the Redskins are going to win. And they pull, the Dolphins end up pulling Josh Rosen. So if you're Josh Rosen, you know what you're thinking, right? You're thinking they're tanking to get a quarterback. I have no future here. I don't care about winning or losing a game. I care about my stats. And I need to make sure that I'm in position to either be a backup to the next franchise quarterback, although the Dolphins have had so many, it's hard to keep track. But they've had zero since Marino. They've just tried. So he wants to play for himself. Not uncommon with athletes who are playing for money on a team which stinks, which the Dolphins do. But wouldn't you know That Brian Flores, the first-year coach, pulls Rosen and puts in Fitzpatrick. That's not what you do when you're tanking. You let Rosen play the entire game. You're living the dream. If you're Steve Ross, the owner of the Dolphins, and you're watching this game, you are doing the Snoopy dance because Josh Rosen stinks. And then your coach puts in Fitzpatrick, who brings this renewed energy, and all of a sudden the Dolphins find themselves scoring what could be the game-time touchdown. It was 17-10 to at the end of the game. Then it becomes 17-16 on a Fitzpatrick drive. What do you do? Do you go for the tie at home? That's the general rule, is you go for the tie at home and the win on the road. That's the baseball rule, the football rule, the basketball rule. You go for the winning shot at the end of a game if you're on the road. If you're at home, you go for a two if you're down two. That's at the old NBA days. Now everyone chucks and ducks. So they call in, they're going for two. And I'm thinking, this is brilliant. This is how the management gets to control the two-able. They call a play for a two-point conversion that will go down in history. If the Dolphins go over, which I suspect they will, although they do play the Bengals on December 22nd, we'll have plenty of time to discuss that. But Steve Ross, Chris Greer, owner GM, President Tom Garfinkel, they're watching the two-point conversion. And they know the play call. So it's not a secret what plays are called in the NFL. <clears throat> have you ever seen the, uh I have a cough button that I didn't just use. For those of you not watching, it's this amazing thing that all I had to do is press and you would not have heard this like this. But I didn't do that. Okay, that won't happen again. So you know the plays. You know how all of the uh the coaches have these big sheets in front of them and they're all color-coded with red and yellow and green. Well, the play that the Dolphins called for their two-point conversion, it was black on the sheet, and it had like a skull and crossbones because it was guaranteed not to work. The players knew it. The fans knew it. Even Tua, who's watching the game because he's looking to see which team he's going to play for, he knows that it can't work. Dolphins lose by one. The fans in the, in the Hard Rock Stadium didn't know whether to cheer or boo or clap. Suffice it to say, guess what? Dolphins lose. Callahan gets his first win. It was a game that I was forced to watch. But the good news is the Dolphins are still in the running to have both the perfect season and the imperfect season. And I think in a world of symmetry, that would be tremendous. But then the doubleheader game that I got to watch was a game that I thought would be interesting. Dolphins, uh, uh, Cowboys, Jets. The Cowboys win their first three coming out of the gate, lose two in a row. How do things not get better when you're playing the Jets? They have Sam Darnold back. Did you notice Sam Darnold, his padding around his spleen? I hope the doctors told him that when you get hit directly in the spleen, it doesn't matter what the padding is. It's going to hurt. And if you're not done with mono, you're going to have a big problem. So Sam Darnold has his first game. Coach Gaze is looking for his first win, wondering why the Dolphins ever fired him. The ambassador to England, the owner of the Jets is wondering if the Jets will ever win a game as he's watching the game at night in London time. And the Cowboys are a guaranteed win in your survival pool. You take the Cowboys because you cannot lose to the Jets. The game is progressing and the Jets are looking as though they are an actual playoff contender. This can't be part of the tanking plan unless the Jets aren't taking, in which case they just stink for no reason. You have to assume that they're trying now, that the season's over, past the quarter pole. But suffice it to say, let's make a long story slightly shorter, the Cowboys lost in an unbelievable upset to me because Jerry Jones is watching this game, and he has been focused on Jason Garrett as the coach, and Jerry Jones did what only an owner, who also is president, who also is the GM, can say. He said, and I quote, well, I kind of quote because I don't have the exact quote, but I do know what he said. If you're betting on Jason Garrett being fired during the season, save your money. Well, guess what? I ran right out to bet it because that is exactly what an owner or a president or GM says when he's trying to do an end around and he's trying to do a misdirection. Jason Garrett has a very likely chance Of not being there in week 16. And why is that? What we look for when we're firing people with the Marlins and what other teams are looking for and what meant something to me is did the manager lose the clubhouse? Or in the NBA, did he lose the timeout? They look at that. Are players paying attention to what the coach is saying? Well, Jason Garrett in video that it wasn't the number one thing that trended on Twitter this weekend. There may have been something else. But this one was still outstanding. And it was the players coming off the field. Jason Garrett holds his hands out to give a high five to his players. Keep in mind, this is when they stopped the Jets and they were still down by more than a score in the waning moments of the game. So the game's over and for all intents and purposes, and the players basically blew off Jason Garrett. And I find that I found that to be brilliant for me because that showed that Jason Garrett has lost that team. And if you are the Cowboys and you're the owner, you have to look at those things. You've got Prescott, who wants to and needs to and will get paid. You have Elliott, who was just signed to a contract after his holdout. Jerry Jones has gone into bed with these players, so he can't get rid of them. The best chance he has is to get rid of his coach, who I can't believe has been there for as long as he has. I think this is up to his 10th year, in a Cowboys polo, both as a coordinator and a coach. But for them to lose the way they did, and then for Jerry Jones, his comments were, uh they were less than good if you're in the Garrett household. He didn't blame the loss on Jason Garrett, but when he talks to the media after a game, you have to know that he's talking from the corporate sponsorship side, from the business side. He's not talking from the football side. He actually puts on his business hat because he wants all of his fans and all of his, the way that he gets his bread buttered and why his franchise is worth four plus bill. He needs everyone to be calm. But the football Jerry Jones is red from the neck up and he's squeezing his cup. I was going to say it's a paper cup, but in his owner's suite, I assume it's some sort of crystal. So he's squeezing it to the point that it breaks because he has not exactly had a successful tenure and he's in danger If Dan Snyder disappears, Jerry Jones is actually in danger of being known as the worst owner currently in the NFL. And Jerry Jones doesn't like that. While he wants to have the most valuable franchise, he also wants more rings. He's only been to the, he has not won a ring since the early days. It's been 10 or 11 years, I want to say. Coca may be in my ear with the exact number it's been since the Cowboys won, but it's certainly over a decade. By the way, you're going to be hearing the name Coco a lot. Coca Matthew Coca, He's sort of controlling the show from behind because we try not to put him on screen because we're trying to actually have people watch. And we try not to let his voice out because we want people to listen. But he is actually the brains behind this whole operation. And he just whispered something in my ear while I was talking. So I have no idea what he said, but I think he was giving a year that the Cowboys last won the Super Bowl. And it was 1995. When you hear people on TV say something that they didn't know, and then they know, and you think it's them knowing it, it's actually not. There's always a coca in their ear telling them stuff. So sometimes when athletes become uh, um, basically analysts, right? We're watching the postseason. You see Pedro and David Ortiz and Dontre Willis. Every once in a while, for players who don't have experience or executives who don't have experience, you'll hear them pausing, and when they pause, it's for no other reason than they haven't realized that you can still talk and listen right here in your ear at the same time. On a side note, glad David Ortiz is doing what he's doing. I just can't figure out what he puts in his ears. They look like they're diamond-encrusted earpieces that are on both ears. Talk about sort of drawing attention to yourself when you don't want to be noticed. I'm not sure that's the way to do it. So those were two of the big football stories we talked about with the Tua Bowl. We talked about the Cowboys. Uh The third one, how could you not talk about Antonio Brown? Antonio Brown. Uh, he has eight grievances against the NFL currently pending. And yet he is expecting to be signed by a team and then play. Um, Antonio, I have a piece of advice for you. If you want to ever play in the NFL again, you better drop your grievances because owners have a long memory. And young man, for you, the juice is not worth the squeeze. You're not worth it to anybody. If you can't make it on the Patriots, who believe in everything short of lying, cheating, and stealing, along with intelligence, to win games, of course, Tom Brady helps. So does Belichick. If you can't survive on the Patriots, um, you're never going to survive anywhere. That's the bottom line. And so Antonio Brown is believing that he's going to settle these grievances, and then all of a sudden, he's going to have an opportunity to play. I think he's grossly mischaracterizing the state of the NFL and I'm not talking about collusion. This is not a Kaepernick situation where it's possible that no teams want to sign him because of the distraction from a political standpoint. There's no politics about this. This is more like crime. Sometimes crime and politics go together, but not in this case. You've got a player released by the Raiders, released by the Patriots, current grievances, and you're about more than a quarter poll done with the year. Um, Antonio, You better go to L.A. Fitness and start getting in shape because you're not going to any team's camp anytime soon. That's not my major wait-to-see moment of this show, but it certainly is one of the wait-to-see moments. This is when football starts to get good, though. You know, you've got the teams who are, who are undefeated in the Patriots and the Niners. And you've got teams who are not going to win. Like you've got the Bengals in Miami. You've got teams with one win who, you know, their season's done. You've got Russell Wilson, who if he keeps it up is the MVP. So this is the time of year where we've had it at the beginning, think in baseball terms, cause that's what I try to do and people can sort of see that better. So we're six games in. That's like 60 games into the regular season. So you're beginning to approach June. And by June in baseball, you're getting into the heart of the season, June, July, August. So these next five games in football are sort of the middle of the season where the cream will rise and the crap will fall. And then you get into the end of the season, which is obviously where playoff seedings happen and MVPs are won and lost. So there was a uh, a pretty serious thing that happened this weekend that we have to talk about. And I can't. I can't do a show called Nothing Personal and not talk about things um, that actually matter to me. And the report that came out about Tyler Skaggs, uh, it hurt and it hurt because it brought up a lot of memories about a player who who we had named Jose Fernandez who died. and uh, in 2016, Tyler Skaggs, as you may remember, was a pitcher for the Los Angeles Angels who died in his hotel room. The immediate word after he died is there was no foul play. And when there's no foul play, that means that there was not a crime we thought. But guess what? It came out just this weekend. Criminal activity may, in fact, have been involved. And we're not talking about a robbery or a stick up. It turns out that he died of an overdose and he had opioids in his system, oxycodone. He had fentanyl in his system and he died choking on his own vomit. And that's not the biggest story of the day. The biggest story is when that autopsy results came out, the family stood up that day and said, our son was fed drugs by members of the Los Angeles Angels organization. Let me repeat that to make sure you heard that. Tyler Skaggs's family said that he got the drugs that killed him from his employer from a baseball team, from his baseball team. What went on in the commissioner's office after the family released that statement was like a fire drill, like one of the old movies where people running around like chickens without their head because they went to DEFCON 4, Barry Corbin from War Games, Matthew Broderick, Google it. They were at DEFCON 4 because can you imagine for baseball, they've got enough issue with PEDs. If all of a sudden that the clubhouse becomes a place where opioids are being dealt. So I tried to dig into this story because in my experience, 18 years in the clubhouse, I never saw a player take opioids. And the reason I would never see a player take opioids is that opioids are the opposite of PEDs. The opposite. When you take an opioid, from what I understand, rumor has it, you become a little more sluggish your brain becomes a little cloudy. You can't go pitch. You can't go play. It's not like the amphetamines, the uppers, the Adderalls, the Ritalins that players are taking because they want to get up for a game and it makes them hyper-focused. When you take an opioid, you become unfocused. It would be like a player choosing to get stoned right before going to bat. What do you aim for the middle ball? No, you don't do that. So when are these players taking their opioids? they're doing it when they're not pitching or not playing. But in baseball, you play every day. So then it's got to be pitchers who pitch once every five days if you're a starter. So things are beginning to add up. You can take your opioids when you're not due to pitch that day. So the story came that an employee in the PR department dealt, sold, and got paid by SCAGs to deliver opioids two skags. That is a crime. That implicates the Angels organization because it was done while Eric, his name was Eric K, is Eric K, and he came out and actually went public. He went to the authorities to tell his story. He's named other names, which has baseball losing its mind. Because what if there are current players who are not dead who are doing opioids right now? Of course, there's off-season testing going on for PEDs, but nothing for opioids. So this whole story is a tragic story, but the end of it has to be the following. If Major League Baseball and the union cannot come to agreement on opioid testing, then you know for sure that neither Tony Clark nor Rod Manford actually care one iota about any player. They only care about money for the players or for the league but I know Rob Manford very well. And I've spent time with Tony Clark and you will see an agreement on opioid testing because we must test for it because this is not a baseball issue. This is a life issue. This is a societal issue where kids in their twenties who are playing baseball, they're the ones who are addicted to opioids. They're taking them every day. And if you really want to improve baseball and you want to improve society, then you institute testing this offseason. You don't need the collective bargaining agreement to be reopened. That's the excuse that MLB uses now and that Tony Clark uses for the union. They say, "Hey, we'll get to that in 2021 when we're negotiating a new CBA. Uh-uh. You get to it right now. And you announce an agreement during the World Series when everyone's watching that you will not put up with opioid use, and you are going to get help for any players, unnamed help. We're not going to put your name public. You're not going to be suspended, but we are going to get you treatment starting now. So when spring training comes, you have kicked the habit, and we are going to keep treating you throughout your career and then after your career. That's how important. PEDs, that's something that affects your body. You get hurt. Your knees hurt. You can die if you do too much of it. You can get acne all over if you do it. You become big, strong, and it's hard to play. Opioids are not PEDs. The union better do something with MLB. Look for it. Look for it soon during the World Series or soon after. That's not the only baseball story off the field. We're supposed to be focusing on the ALCS. Uh, One of my least favorite men um, as a player and uh, off the field announced this two days ago, uh, over this weekend, that he was ready and excited to manage in Major League Baseball. Yes, folks, you heard it. Kurt Schilling. Remember Kurt, the bloody sock guy, the guy for the Angels, the one who right now does nothing but tweet? Who would ever tweet about things that are controversial? That's outrageous. But Kurt Schilling certainly does do it. And he then announced that he wants to manage the Phillies. Well, I know that John Middleton, the owner of the Phillies is looking for a new voice and a new manager because they fired Gabe Kapler. He's interviewing Showalter, interviewing Girardi and Sosha. There will be others on the list. I will tell you one name that will never be on the list. Even though he played for the Phillies, they will not interview, will not interview Kurt Schilling. It will be a cold day in hell. When Kurt Schilling gets a job managing a Major League Baseball team, you cannot be Kurt Schilling and get a job. And everyone's going to protest. I'm only talking about politics. Well, I'm not actually. I'm talking about someone who only has interest in having his opinions heard on subjects other than what are relevant to doing the job that have nothing to do with managing. Kurt Schilling, you know, eight year career. Very successful for the Phils, but he's not going to be their manager. And this is not a political statement for all, everyone from CBS who's listening to this first episode. White knuckles, worried what's going to come out next. I'm not saying why he shouldn't manage, except to tell you from a conclusory statement standpoint, he's not managing. Another guy, Carlos Beltran, what about him? Uh, he had the quote of the day yesterday he is a assistant for the New York Yankees, and he's been rumored to be a candidate to manage, and he came out and said, uh, yeah, I'm not interested in interviewing for the Cubs or Padres. My only interest is in the New York Mets. That's good. That must make the Wilpons feel good that someone wants to manage the train wreck, but instead they wouldn't have to pay him that much, which is good because for Girardi, it'll take a king's ransom. Except then, Beltron, he screwed it up. He said, I want to manage the Mets not because of Syndergaard and DeGrom, not because of the Rookie of the Year, Alonzo, or how great City Field is, or how much he loves the Wilpons, which he doesn't. He came out and said, I want to manage the Mets because I live in New York. Please marinate on that, folks. I want to manage a team because I live in the city where the team plays. That's like putting on your resume that I want to work for the company that I'm interviewing at solely because of where they're located, that doesn't give a warm and fuzzy feeling to your employer. It doesn't make them think that you actually have a chance to be good or you're going to put in the time. Being a manager these days, you have to manage up. You have a whole front office you have to answer to. You've got a fan base. You've got the media. You've got ownership. And if you're running home all the time and not putting in the hours, uh, you're not going to be a good manager. And so for Beltran to say, I only want to manage for the Mets only because they're in New York, uh, it made me smile. Aaron Boone, you don't have to worry. I promise you Carlos Beltran will not be managing the Yankees. Even if you lose to the Astros, you're going to be in good shape. Don't worry. Carlos Beltran, you'll get an interview, but you're not going to get a job. From a postseason standpoint, people are complaining. I never understood fans. Could someone explain to me why everyone complains about juice balls and then complains when the balls aren't juiced? I get the feeling that people want to complain just because they want to be heard and they want the courage of being able to complain on a keyboard instead of actually face to face with someone. You heard it on CBS Sports HQ when I said specifically that the playoffs will be different. You will have better starting pitching. You will have lower scoring games. Whereas some pundits said, it will be the first time we're going to get 15 to 10 games. It's going to be crazy. It's going to be home runs galore. It's going to be a derby. Well, it's not. It turns out that pitching and defense wins rings. 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 Pitching and defense wins. Why are the Nats doing what they're doing? Because they're pitching. Why are the cards even in it without hitting? Because they're not losing 10 nothing, three to one, two to nothing because of their pitching. So what's going to happen now is MLB had to come up with a statement. MLB is always chasing its tail from a PR standpoint. We talked about this for every one of my 18 years. Why are we always so reactive? Why can't we be proactive from a PR standpoint? MLB came out and said, Hey, guess what? These are the same batch of balls that are used in the regular season. Do you know what they just said? They just acknowledged that the balls were juiced during the regular season. It's the same balls except with a different stamp. Well, I've seen postseason balls, and it is a different stamp. It says 2020 postseason. I'll grant you I haven't seen a postseason ball since 2003, but that's how the stamps work. They come with a 2020 postseason, and there's a logo, but that doesn't impact flight of the ball every pitcher with whom I've spoke about this issue has told me the ball is different because the stitching feels different. Not because of the stamp. The actual stitching is different. You were aware during the regular season, the balls were juiced. They used major league balls in AAA and you couldn't even scout players in AAA because my cousin who is eight years old was hitting home runs in the PCL in AAA. So that doesn't count. But in MLB, it's the same thing. Everyone hitting 30 home runs, 40 home runs. So why would MLB choose to change the balls? Well, here's the reason. What do their TV partners not like in the postseason? Because it's all about TV. That's where the money is. They don't like the four-hour games. They don't like the three-hour and 45-minute games. When you've got a juiced ball and you've got that level of offense, you've got games that last a long time. The TV partners, ESPN, Turner, Fox, they all want shorter games, under three hours. No matter what you hear TV people or MLB people say, just know, guaranteed, they're looking for shorter game times. That's why baseball has a whole committee about pace of play and pace of action. We've got to get game times down. So without juiced balls, you get shorter games because there's better pitching, better defense, fewer runs scored. That is at the end of the day, what is at the root of this juice ball issue. Did they change the balls? Yes, they did. It makes perfect sense that they would do it because you've got now not one national game a week. Every postseason game is a nationally televised game. And these 18-inning games, remember the last season, World Series, Max Muncie hits a walk-off in the 18th inning, and I believe it was me and Chris Hassel watching the game, and that's it? Just kidding, Chris. He was fast asleep, like in his fourth stage of REM. You should check him out, Chris Hassel. Sleeps 12 large every day. Haven't figured that out. That's a week for me. An 18th inning game, there's the cough button I didn't use, an 18-inning game ended at 2 in the morning three in the morning. I can't remember how late it was. Nobody wants that. So you want games ending by 11, 1130 Eastern time at the most. So juice balls, that is really not an issue right now for to be discussed within the broadcast, but it is needs to be taken care of this off season. And it will be because owners are none too happy about it because they have to pay money to players who hit home runs. And there are so many home runs being hit that players are getting paid more in arbitration and free agency. So look for this issue to absolutely be resolved. But in terms of what's happening now, the juice is gone. What else did I do this weekend? El Camino. Everyone watch El Camino, the Breaking Bad movie? You have to. So Breaking Bad is a series that I watched. I had never, I never watched it what it was on. I binged it. I'm almost positive that I was Howard Hughes. I'm talking with milk bottles and the whole thing while I was watching Breaking Bad. I don't think I left the house because I wanted, I couldn't stop watching the series. And when it ended, I was actually depressed and despondent because when Walter White is not in your life, things are not good anymore. I eventually got over it like people do when there's desperation and tragedy, you get over it but now a movie came out streaming on Netflix. It's in the theaters. I watched it on Netflix, El Camino. It is the story of what happened after Jesse drives away from the compound. Now I was told not to talk spoilers, but I don't buy that. You're going to hear reviews on this show. If you don't want a spoiler, then watch things when they come out or fast forward for the next 65 to 82 seconds, uh, seconds. According to my rundown, Jesse leaves, and the entire movie is about what happens once he escapes, except in a two-hour and two-minute movie, they actually went back, and they went back to shoot what they called flashbacks. My problem with El Camino is the flashbacks were filmed now, but they were meant to be flashbacks. So could you explain how Todd, the character Todd, in a flashback scene, which is one of the great scenes of El Camino, it's like he's gained 50 pounds since he, the, that scene should have been filmed because it's supposed to take place when Jesse was holding, was in captivity. Remember when he was chained up and he had to grow that beard and he had to cook meth in order to make money? So they do all these flashbacks. The movie is a little choppy, but for two hours and two minutes, it's like a fix. That's what it felt like. I've never done meth and I will never, you say never say never, but I will say never. It felt like a fix. It felt like I was getting my Breaking Bad fix back, and I couldn't stop watching. It was sort of like a train wreck where you don't want to stop, and you're watching it for 122 minutes, and when it ends, you know you're going to get that feeling of sadness, that feeling of depression again. So I felt that. When the credits rolled, I was hoping for like a um, Marvel-like scene that happens in the credits. There's nothing like that. The movie just ends. Now, there is an appearance by Bryan Cranston, Walter White, and it was filmed now, even though it's a flashback scene, obviously, because you know what happened to Walter White at the end of Breaking Bad. And watching him and Jesse, Walter and Jesse, do a scene together, you're reminded why that show was so good. So if I were you, I would get out there and I would try as hard as you can to watch that movie, watch it now, because spoilers are definitely, definitely coming out. The other thing I watched, which was fascinating and is creating all sorts of waves. And how many people watching this or listening to this can run a, a mile in four minutes and 33 seconds? Can you? I've done, I think 20 or 25 marathons. I've done an Ironman. I've done an ultra marathon. I can't do a four minute and 33 mile mile. I can't run at a pace that's four minutes and 33 seconds for even a hundred yards. Well, wouldn't you know it? That Elud Kipchoge, Elud Kipchaji i want to get his name right—he ran a full marathon. That's twenty-six point two miles, and he broke the two-hour barrier. Folks, this is epic. This is like breaking the four-minute mile if you're Roger Bannister. This is like Neil Armstrong walking on the moon. Yes, it is. This is epic that he was able to do it. So, of course, the cynics online and I—you know—the internet was not built for this level of cynicism that now exists it's a great tool for information but my god you can get people who take life too seriously did he have help no he had to run the whole 26.2 miles himself someone wrote that he wore special nike shoes that were meant to make you go faster can i give you the hottest take of this segment that's all nike does they make things to help your performance athletically. Every shirt, every short, every pair of shoes is meant to help you run faster, jump higher, throw longer, everything. It's not PEDs. It's called clothing, shoes. They criticized elude's shoes. Then they criticized the fact that he had pacers or that there was a car telling him how fast he had to run. Well, have you ever been to an IndyCar race? They're wearing the same things, not the diamond-studded ones from Ortiz that we talked about. They're wearing the earpiece where they're saying, go faster, pass on the left. You're five seconds behind. You're completely behind, so you have to run faster. That's all he was being told. That's all a pacer is. It makes you go faster. I am sick and tired of people going out and criticizing something just because they can't do it. And that's all this is, folks. It's just jealousy. It's jealousy that Nike was able to work with another company to do a documentary to get someone to do something that we thought was not humanly possible, but it was humanly possible. He broke the two-hour marathon. I want everyone listening, just go for a run. You're going to say you don't want to run, you don't like running. Just go on a treadmill one time. Go to your gym, go to your CrossFit one time. And put the treadmill, just for fun, put it to 10, right? Not three, but don't start at 10 because you're going to fall. Don't worry, CBS, I'm not going to get sued. Don't start at 10. Start at five. Go to six. Hold on to the railing of your treadmill. Go to seven. See how fast your legs go. Go to eight, nine, go to 10, and see how long you can keep up that pace. But hold on and have a spotter there. You know the spotters when you're lifting weights? Not that I lift weights, all evidence to the contrary. But when you're not lifting weights, you are lifting, you have these big spotters, have a spotter for your treadmill. No one can do what this man did. 26.2 miles. Congratulations. You deserve every bit of kudos for what you did. You have set a new bar that will not be matched for decades to come or until Nike finds a better shoe. Ridiculous. So every single week, and every single day, you're going to hear me Monday through Friday. We're going to do this for, for 45 minutes a day. You're going to have a hashtag wait to see segment. What is my wait to see segment? That is about accountability. I'm a little tired of watching and listening to all of the podcasts and all of the shows on TV and all of the people in the media who make all these predictions and they never get back to them. Well, my hashtag is wait to see because I'm going to tell you something that I think is going to happen. And then if it happens, that means we waited and we saw, one nothing me. If it doesn't happen, it means we waited and we saw, and I lost. It's one nothing you. Because I know what you're all rooting for, but what's my wait to see of the day? It's a good one. Do you have to go 0-16 to win Tank Tua? I think it is going to require zero victories. Zero. The Dolphins are going to get zero, and they're going to get the number one pick. They will lose to the Bengals, and the Bengals will end up 1-15 because they will win what will be Tank Bowl Part 2. But I think you are going to see a winless team, and they're going to end up drafting Tua, and it will be a total, total wait to see. The other thing we're going to do together every day is we're going to have a pick. What I've done on CBS Sports HQ for the past year and a half I've had a Grand Slam pick of the day. It's been just baseball, and I'll give you my favorite pick. I'll also do an underdog of the day from time to time. But here, we're doing all sports. This is not just about baseball. It's about entertainment. It's about baseball. We can bet on anything. I can get you a line on whether or not it's possible that El Camino will be nominated for an Oscar or Aaron Paul will be nominated for Best Actor. He won't. But anything we can bet on. So I'm going to give you a pick, at least one pick every day and we're going to keep track of it, and we're going to have this great graphic they're going to come up with uh, when, when it's the video podcast. On so audio, I'm just going to tell you what the graphic is. We don't have it, but the pick today is not just a grand slam, but it's also an underdog. It is the St. Louis Cardinals. The Cardinals will win the game today against the Washington Nationals, and you disagree because they're underdogs, quite obviously. The consensus line on this is plus 116 or plus 118. I'm still learning what consensus lines are, I go online and I see, maybe it's the consensus online, but plus 118, take that, take the cards. Flaherty will go into the seventh inning and they will get to Strasbourg. Finally, you will get at-bats and RBIs from someone other than Jose Martinez. Goldie and Ozuna will have a good game. Well, I appreciate the fact that you've been with me for this first episode. We're going to be back every single day. And you have to remember when we're done that it's just business.